Hello and welcome to this next edition of Café Klingendal, the podcast series of the Klingendal Institute. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute, and I'm joined here today by two of my esteemed colleagues, Ingrid de Hoge and Thies Dams. Welcome. Ingrid de Hoge is a senior associate fellow at the Klingendal Institute and a China lecturer at Leiden University. Um, Thies Dams is a research fellow at the Klingendal Institute, uh, and his research focuses on grand strategy, international political thought, but also Europe-China relations and the geopolitics of the Silk Road. Both Ingrid and Thies are connected to our newly established Klingendal China Center. Um, thank you both for joining me here today. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So what I would like to do is to just briefly reflect with you, with both of you, on um, the events last week. So last week, on October 1st, we witnessed the celebration of um, the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. And um, now that the dust has settled, now that we've all seen the images of Xi Jinping on the uh, Tiananmen Square going by and, and witnessing the military parade, what is the tally on the basis of that celebration? What conclusions can we draw? Ingrid, perhaps you first. Yeah, good question, Rem. I think first uh, we saw that this was a highly orchestrated celebration, but nevertheless a very big celebration, and that not only the party celebrated, but that indeed also the Chinese people celebrated. That was not only orchestrated, uh, people felt really proud about all the achievements of their country. This is, of course, also the narrative of China and the message that was sent by Xi Jinping. But it is important to understand that people in China are proud and really celebrated with all their hearts. And if you, for example, would look at WeChat, Chinese mm. Twitter, um, the messages were all red colored these days and people did that just by themselves. Uh, so I think that's important to note. And the message sent, of course, is very much that China has achieved a lot in these 70 years and that uh, China is now on a threshold of uh, achieving great prosperity for its population and realize their dream of rejuvenation. Mm -hmm. So in addition to this military parade, and a lot has been said about it, uh, we saw very clear messages being sent by Xi Jinping saying, okay, we have achieved this in these 70 years, we have fought hard for this, we have made sacrifices, we have achieved a lot, but we're not there yet. And now we have another um, difficult phase ahead of us in yeah. which, again, we will have to make sacrifices to achieve our rejuvenation. And that was a very clear message. And, and that rejuvenation, what would that entail? I mean, what is he hinting at? What's the unfinished business that needs to be... Achieved. So I think there's a couple of important ingredients, and Ingrid, please add on to that. Uh, first and foremost is the alleviation of poverty in China, the creation of a brand new and commercial and high-tech middle class. Uh, but I think more importantly, or at least also more relevant to us, Europe, um, is to regain China's standing in the international world. So to overcome the humiliation suffered after the Opium Wars, in which China was degraded, as you can, for instance, read in the National Museum uh, exhibition in Beijing on the great rejuvenation of China, uh, was degraded to a 
semi-feudal and semi-colonial state, uh, although it just before was a proud and ancient civilization at the top of the world pyramid. So they want to regain this status as a great power, as an envied civilization. Um, and actually there were some subtle and less subtle symbolic hints to exactly that sort of status as a new hegemon mm. in the military parade. So this was the first military parade on the anniversary celebrations in which foreign troops marched. Mm. And there were a couple of interesting points to that because, I mean, there were the usual suspects, the bad boys of the global classroom. You had Belarus marching, but also, for instance, Serbia mm -hmm. went along. Uh, and Russia gained a, a specifically a very prominent position in that military march. Putin was standing next to Xi Jinping during part of the celebrations. So uh, for the first time, China was bringing together all their, what you could see as, well, new or semi-formal military alliances to show that it's also uh, enhancing ties on that front. So uh, I think since Xi Jinping's reign has come forward is, is far less concerned about showing the world that it's willing to take that leading position. And that has everything to do with that great rejuvenation, China taking back its position in the historical stand. And it's interesting, the role of these outside countries mm. that they come to in some ways to show their respect or to yeah. help commemorate 70 years. Um, when you look in your crystal ball, what do you expect of the 71st? Anniversary. I mean, will we only see more and more of this, or was this a one-time because this is now a, a special date, 70 years? Well, I don't expect anything big next year, but in 2021, uh, yep. China will celebrate the 100th birthday of the Chinese Communist Party, of the establishment of the party. Uh, and then we may see new celebrations. I, I think this uh, type of celebrations is only once every five or ten years at most. Uh, but maybe to add something to that is what we also saw very clearly, and I think you will agree uh, mm. to that piece, is that this was also in a certain sense the crowning of Xi Jinping as yeah. a very strong and powerful leader. Uh, before uh, that day, people were discussing whether or not he would be... Uh, given the name of People's Leader, that's a name that also Mao Zedong had. Uh, this didn't happen in the end, but it was very clearly also Xi's party and yeah. a celebration of Xi as a great leader. And a crowning of Xi Jinping, the next one in a long line of crownings, because he's yeah. been adding on vignettes to his <laughs> resume when it comes to that for, yeah. for a couple of years now. Yeah. yeah, and he's very much hinting that he is, in a sense... Um, the, the next step after Mao Zedong, Mao yeah. Zedong established uh, the People's Republic of China and she establishing the new era for China, an era in which uh, China achieves a lot of its hopes for the future, being a technologically advanced country, uh, being a global leader, it's presenting its ideas about global governance, it's uh, presenting to the world its ideas about development. Uh, Belt and Road Initiative, I think, is China's model for development. Yeah. Uh, community of Shared Future for Mankind is its um, model for global governance. So China is very confident in presenting its own political models uh, to the world. Yeah. And I think that is also something that was celebrated. There. Right, but at the same time, so the the party went off more or less as intended, as a crowning moment, but still there were also some party crashers. There was this substantial hiccup in the orchestration of the celebrations, namely what was happening in Hong Kong. Yeah. 
the contrast was very sharp between, on the one hand, this highly groomed, orchestrated celebration of the power of China and Xi Jinping, and at the same time we saw um, violent protests taking place in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, how, how do you see that contrast? And were there any hints during the celebrations in Beijing as to what was happening in Hong Kong? Well, especially during Xi Jinping's big speech, Carrie Lam was sitting just across from him on a prominent place on the balcony. Um, she wasn't dealing with protesters in, in Hong Kong. She was sitting next to Xi Jinping, smiling, clapping, uh, while he had all sorts of subtle hints, but less subtle threats to, uh, to the Hong Kong demonstrators and, and certainly also to Taiwan as a, as a consequence of that, uh, that he is more than willing to defend the Chinese people against uh, these agents of chaos. I, I think uh, he showed his, his rhetorical muscle mm -hmm. when it comes to Hong Kong quite prominently in his speech. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, and I think also the fact that Carrie Lam was sitting next to him was yeah. not a coincidence, no. uh, and that was shown prominently on Chinese television, of course. Uh, but also in this parade, there was a flower float referring to one country, two systems. And yeah. that is the model for Hong Kong, of course, which uh, is on paper allowed its own system uh, for 50 years until 2047. And while this float was passing, the people walking around them, and they are supposedly people from Hong Kong, were all shouting, we love the motherland. Mm. So this was a very clear uh, message uh, sent to Hong Kong that uh, China still wants to adhere to one country, two systems, that they believe in this as the model, and also a message that Hong Kong should adhere to this. Yeah. Uh, but of course in Hong Kong at the same time people were calling this a black day in history. There was uh, a lot of violence and people were very much upset by the fact that uh, Carrie Lam was sitting there next to uh, Xi Jinping and they felt more than ever uh, a big distance to what was happening in China and uh, a big distance uh, towards Chinese identity. And I, I think if, if we can move a little bit to what's happening in Hong Kong, it's very clear that uh, most people there now feel they have a Hong Kong identity and uh, they less and less want to belong to China, to the People's Republic yeah. of China. They do belong there. They are a part of China. We all acknowledge that. But they don't want to be part of that anymore. And that's, of course, a very big dilemma. Mm. And so, uh, Ingrid, would you say, because I've been pondering over this. I would say also listening to Xi Jinping's speech that the Beijing leadership has a, a genuine lack of understanding and disregard for that part of Hong Kongese identity. It's not just that it acknowledges that as a sort of annoying problem that needs to be solved, but it has a genuine sort of distaste for that kind of democratic protest culture for the, in the spirit of independence. Would you say that is, yeah. is yeah. actually happening? I, I think that that's the impression, strong impression yeah. uh, we have also from the rhetoric that uh, Beijing is using. And uh, China really doesn't understand why Hong Kong people don't want no. to be part of China because China is moving towards this glorious future. It's doing well economically 
Uh, it's providing growth for the country, it's providing a better life for people year by year. So it really doesn't understand no. why uh, Hong Kong people and don't like uh, China. Is this a flaw in the narrative from Beijing? I mean, Tis, you've been writing yeah. about China's narrative about itself, about the narrative it... it um, uh, extends to the world about itself, about its role in the world. Is this one of the white spots in its narrative, how it deals with Hong Kong? Yeah, I think so. And it, it actually translates beyond just narratives into real sort of strategies of influence. Because what has Beijing trying to do by influencing the Hong Kong business and political elite, um, it has tried to gain influence in, in Hong Kongese affairs. Uh, really, to some extent, forgetting the fact that there's a vibrant and, and honest uh, democratic culture that it can't influence just by influencing elites. So uh, I think that has been indeed a blind spot to Beijing um, and it is struggling to sort of catch up now uh, and we'll start to see that more and more also in Western media because what have the protesters started to do? Place ads all over the world also especially in Western and European media uh, advertising their struggle for freedom and justice and as a reaction to that there have been ads and opinion articles by Beijing or the Hong Kongese government arguing for uh, order over chaos and stability and non-interference. Mm -hmm. So there's a complete mismatch of discourses and I think um, that mismatch is not just being fought out in Hong Kong and in Hong Kongese media, but especially also uh, to some extent starting to being fought out here in, in the West. Indeed, and, and but what we see is that China is not successful at all in doing so. No, yeah. So not in the Western uh, media, Western world, but also not in Hong Kong. And China has a lot of difficulties in getting, let's say, opinion leaders in Hong Kong, strong figures in Hong Kong to side with Beijing. So they're not very successful. No. Uh, plus, uh, the leadership of Hong Kong is quite weak. Uh, this is the opinion of Beijing, but also there was an opinion poll last summer in Hong Kong, and I think only 27% or 30% of Hong Kong people have confidence in the Hong Kong government. So they mm. have a very weak leadership, uh, plus their, uh, they call it United Front work in uh, yeah. Hong Kong, uh, trying to get people to side with, Hong Kong, with Beijing's policies is not very successful. Mm. Plus, they have a population which is really uh, distancing itself from uh, China, so they have a difficult uh, time ahead. And uh, it's not clear what they can do to solve the problem. But this seems like this is a recipe for further confrontation. Yeah. And, and the question in my mind is to what extent Europe and the United States, how, how are... How are they responding? I mean, what can they do in this? On the one hand, this yeah. clash of narratives, like you say, Tis, between order on the one, order and prosperity on the one hand, and freedom and justice yeah. and democracy on the other. Um, plus the fact, what you mentioned, Ingrid, that it's not China isn't really capable of uh, responding, allowing space for uh, for Hong Kong to have its democratic idiosyncrasies, if you will. Mm. So what, what do we do? What does Europe do? How, how do we approach this? So I think one of the most interesting things is that uh, lots of Beijing messaging or narratives or propaganda about Hong Kong to the rest of the world is not just aimed at the West, but is aimed at all other parts of the world. So the new middle classes of Africa and Asia. Um, and I think uh, it's hard for us in Western Europe to imagine that 
actually that message of order over chaos, prosperity over democracy um, is a lot more appealing and doesn't sound as ridiculous as it might sound to our ears in lots of other parts of the world. So I think what we could at least do, if not um, actually use real hard power to uh, help the demonstrators in Hong Kong, because I think our options are very limited there, um, but we can start making the case that this isn't just a couple of people in Hong Kong trying to create chaos. These are, you know, it's a it's a big crowd of people standing up for their identity and heartfelt uh, uh, values. So I think um, uh, we can lend our voice to the demonstrators in Hong Kong, explaining that this isn't just what Beijing is trying to paint it as. You know, a, a practical problem of keeping order in a, a weekly run mini state. Hmm. So I think that's one thing we can do. Push that narrative that this is a real democratic movement. These people have real griefs and that actually lots of people around the world can sympathize with the values they stand up for. Mm -hmm. But I think in addition, we should see if we can help the Hong Kong government to start a dialogue with its population again. Because now we see demonstration escalating into violence and a lot of people in Hong Kong don't like the violence, but they do sympathize with the demonstrators, of course. And the last thing they uh, want to do is to uh, side with the government because they don't have any trust in the government. So I think somehow relationship between the Hong Kong government and uh, the people in Hong Kong have to be restored. I think that's the only solution, because violence, I think not even violence uh, by the People's Republic of China, by the army, uh, will solve the situation. Mm, no. So this is really about a population that needs to see a better future ahead. And the only uh, people that can provide that perspective is the Hong Kong government. And they don't get much uh, support in this respect from Beijing. Uh, so I think maybe that's the task for Europe to see how we can encourage and help the Hong Kong government to start talking to its population and dealing with uh, the problems they have. And of course, not all the problems can be solved, mm. but that could be a starting point. Great. Um, thank you very much, both of you. Thank you for joining me here today. We will make sure to follow this very important topic in yep. days and weeks and months to come. Because if anything, the Hong Kong-Beijing standoff represents one of the um, totemic issues we can now confront is, as liberal democracy is under pressure and the rise of China takes shape. If you want to stay up to date on Café Klingendal regarding this topic and other topics we address, please register for our newsletter at www.klingendal.org